Compassion and self-compassion are often, you can often train those like parallel to each other. But I think self-compassion is something that many of us is, is lacking. We're not very proficient in it. And it is so important for our well-being. It's important for our self-esteem. It's important for our stress levels. It's important for our relationship with others. It's, it's just hugely important and something that we don't, um, we don't acknowledge it so much. Welcome to the Learnability Podcast, where it's our mission to explore the future of work and lifelong learning to accelerate professional and personal development. My name is Innocent Mugenga, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the CEO of an edtech startup called Align. We've built a platform to help you validate your informal learning and achieve your objectives and learning needs in a community of peers and mentors on a similar journey. You can download and try out the app at alignbetter.com. That's align spelled A-L-I-N-E better.com. Welcome, Maria. Welcome to the Learnability Podcast. Today, we are uh, borrowing the studio of Local Glimpse. Uh, thank you for lending us your studio. <laughs> and we are going to talk about the brain. So observing the brain and maybe affecting the brain. We'll see in this conversation. Well, I mean, the brain is my favorite uh, topic in the world. So that's amazing. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. It's my first time on this side of the mic. Yes, you have your own podcast. We'll get a little bit into that. But maybe first you can share uh, who you are, what you do and stuff yeah. like that. So uh, my name is Maria Sandel. I'm a clinical neurologist by training, and I've been working also in cognitive medicine for a few years, uh, mainly with cognitive disease. And I recently moved into more research. Um, so I do have some clinical background when it comes to neurology, but neurology is, of course, mainly based on when things go wrong in the brain. Mm. And I have a personal interest a lot in the flourishing brain, the happy brain, the healthy brain, and how we can cultivate that and how we can maintain that and how we can produce more of that and what happens in the brain when we're not feeling good. Mm. What What is kind of the neuroscience between self-help, self-development, personal growth? Um, and I'm just really more and more excited about diving deep into these subjects. So, so um yeah, that's me. I love it. <laughs> and, I, and I'm very excited for this conversation because uh, neuroscience and everything that has with the brain is one of my favorite topics to explore in general. So it's an honor to have you on. And I'm thinking we can start by setting the scene. Mm -hmm. So I'll ask you if you can give us a definition or distinction between the brain and the mind. What is the difference? Is there a difference? Yeah, so I think... There are probably different people will probably define it a little bit differently, but how I see it and a lot of other people within neuroscience is that the, the brain is kind of the, you know, the brain and the, the neurological functions, uh, the neurons, the connections between them and the mind is the psychological expression mm -hmm. of the functions of the brain. Oh, yes. So... The brain in this case is like the engine, if we use that reference, and the mind is how it it uh, performs or uh, how it um, um, the result of the brain working in a context of the world. Yeah, I think it's kind of our experience of the workings of the brain, yes. how it comes to being conscious for us, how it kind of meshes with our experience of life, how we experience the world is through the mind. Mm. Um, and the information is analyzed in the brain and then it kind of comes out as an experience in the mind. Mm, so it's the sense making. Yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of the way I see it. Mm, that makes sense. And exploring neuroplasticity as a subject, I have come to understand, or I think I learned this uh, uh, quite 
young as well, that when we are young, when we're infants, when we're born and throughout uh, development as youth, there's a lot of neuroplasticity going on. Could you describe this phase and, and how we can learn from that phase and the difference between we get into adult development? Yeah, so the brain is just so amazing. When we're born, we're born with a lot of nerve cells and so many connections between them. It's just like a big mesh of connections, but they're not formed in any specific way. And this is why babies can't really do much. Mm -hmm. They're not very precise in anything they do. They're just flailing around um, very cutely so, but, mm -hmm. but still without much kind of precision. Um, so what happens is something called pruning, where through our experiences and through our development, the brain kind of adapts itself to your unique experience yes. by removing some of the connections that are not used and reinforcing and strengthening and, and developing connections that are used. So it's going from having a lot of tiny connections between the nerve cells to having stronger, larger, maybe longer connections that are adapted to what your brain wants to do. Mm. When you're describing this, I'm seeing it as you said we have a lot of connection when we're young and it's all firing and <clears throat> almost like being generalist, uh, but in a way where, where you're not productive. <laughs> so <laughs> the brain can do anything when we're kids, but we haven't created pathways that help us do what we're trying to achieve. So does the brain become more and more specialist as older, the older we get? Yeah, in a way it is. It, it kind of starts out by... I don't really know if, if if all of it is firing at the same time, but through the child looking at things, taking in sensory experiences, trying to learn things, trying to move, trying to create precision in movement, they are starting to use specific areas of the brain. And those networks are being reinforced, they're being strengthened, and they are the one coming out into the foreground. And then smaller connections that are not being used, they kind of wither away. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a way for the brain to kind of become a bit more efficient. And it is, it is trying to adapt in the best way to what you needed to do mm -hmm. for the certain experience, the, the, the situation that you are in. And, Neuroplasticity when you're a child is, is most, it's, it's kind of passive. Mm. That's why we say kids are like sponges. Mm. They just absorb things. They are, they're kind of like open to plasticity all the time. And, and almost anything that they do, anything that happens to them kind of molds and develops the brain. And, and this form of plasticity is strongest when you're really young. And that's why you can see how tiny babies, they just, developed so incredibly fast and they learn things so incredibly fast. And then you have this up until about age 25. I mean, by the end of it, it kind of gradually morphs into more an adult way of having neuroplasticity. Yeah. Um, but you have this kind of heightened capability for plasticity up until that age. Until 25. Up until about 25. After that, the connections are are stronger, the neurons cannot move around so much, the connections cannot as easily mm. form and transform. Mm. So you need certain you need certain conditions in order to trigger plasticity. But when you do, you can as an adult have almost or maybe as strong plastic molding of the brain as when you're a child, just not kind of like flipped on all the time. Oh yes. So you need to do different things or you need to be in certain circumstances um, in order to, to have that form of plasticity. And what are some of those different things that you can do or those contexts that can stimulate more plasticity in adults? Well, the thing is that <sighs> plasticity is kind of like... It, it's a, it's a state in the brain when it's open to learning and, and changing connections. But the, the real change doesn't occur while you're doing something. It occurs when you're asleep. Mm, so what you, so when you do something and you, you learn something, you need rest afterwards. Otherwise it's not going to consolidate in the brain. So that's why sleep and rest is really, really important. Um, also you need the right chemical balance in the brain. You have, three different neurotransmitters that you need to kind of activate in coordination in order for neuroplasticity to occur. And you need a mismatch because yes. a, a mismatch is what triggers the brain to 
look for something to change. Please describe that a little bit closer. So basically a mismatch is that your brain notices that there is a difference between your desired state mm. and where you're at. So sort of like a failure? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A failure. Oh, yeah. So in order to change, you need to fail. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, your brain will not realize that there is something that needs to change. Brilliant. So that's like a feedback. Yeah, it's, it's the feedback loop. If you yeah. continue to do something and, and you're kind of, you, it, it's, it's good, you think it's okay, or you're not conscious of it being wrong, mm -hmm. your brain is just going to kind of like float on it and just enjoy the experience oh, yes. and just kind of continue to do the same thing. Mm. But when it realizes, the brain is very, very, very attentive to, to mismatch and error and mm. error margin. So when it notices that something is off, it's going to start looking for those nerve cells mm. that are off and try to fix it. And how does the brain notice that something is off? Is that where, do we need external stimuli, maybe a coach or someone observing us from the outside and telling us this? My, my reference, uh, and I'm also a little bit uh, stuffing my throat because I've been <laughs> just from practice, but I'm thinking about boxing and learning, uh, boxing and training. Yeah. And how it's so easy to fall into um, uh, mistakes and you repeat that and then that becomes a habit that is really hard to change. But in that instance, normally you have a coach who's observing you from the outside. And if they tell you every time you're doing that mistake, you then have the chance to start correcting it. Is yeah. it something like that? It's context dependent. Yeah. So it, it depends on what you're trying to learn. So for example, you have the cerebellum is a part of the brain that's in, in the back of the brain um, that is tightly connected to coordination, for example. Mm -hmm. So that is the thing that the, the fact that you can hold a jug of water while you're pouring water into it and it becomes heavier and heavier, what happens is as gravity pulls it stronger towards the earth, your grip will tighten and your arm muscles will, will tense up so that you can compensate for the increased weight without dropping it. Same thing if you're pulling on something and there is a lot of resistance, all of a sudden the resistance drop, you're going to pull back a bit, but mm. at some point you're going to stop. Correct. And this is because your brain is constantly, the cerebellum is sending signals like, like a madman back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, readjusting and correcting. Um, so when it comes to motor skills, that is pretty much what we do. If you do, uh, you're like doing free throws with a basketball or you're playing the piano, you notice that something is wrong with the piano. You can hear that you're off. You get a signal that there's a mismatch, there's something wrong. When you're like shooting a ball and you don't score a goal, you can see, okay, it's not in the right place. Yes. You get some form of feedback. Oh, yes. And is it easier as well to describe? I find it like when, when you speak about uh, development or, or uh, the, the ambition to progress in general, it's sometimes easier to speak about the physical aspect. But what about cognition, for example, then? Because you were mentioning the cerebellum uh, and the cerebellum's role in motor um, action. Mm -hmm. But what about cognitively? Um, how, how do I get feedback uh, that I'm uh, in the cognitive path that might be wrong? It depends a bit. When, mm -hmm. when you talk about con cognition, are you... Are you thinking more about memory and, and geographic skills, those things, or are you thinking more about social emotion? Ooh, good question. Uh, which one am I thinking of? <laughs> both of them are very interested, <laughs> interesting, and we could go down both paths. Uh, which one is easier to explain? Maybe? Well, I mean, if it, if it comes to just kind of rote memory learning, you're trying to learn something from school, you're Often you're, you're going to know kind of when you get it wrong, you're struggling with math, you're trying to kind of get the, the answers correct, and you can see that you're not. It's quite obvious where there is a mismatch. Um, you're trying to remember, I don't know, all the kings and queens that ever lived, and you can see where there is a mismatch because there is some form of like answering, like an answer sheet. It's quite binary. Yeah, it's quite binary. You can see and, and, and there is a mismatch and you can kind of address it. When it comes to social emotions, that is a bit trickier mm. because you need to have awareness of what is going on. And we often don't do that. Mm. So the first step when it comes to plasticity in social emotions is to become aware of what is actually going on in the background. Because unless you're aware of that, your brain is not going to realize that there is something to look for what it is to look for and how to fix it. Oh, yes. And this uh, segues perfectly into uh, what I want to speak about next, which is a little bit more about 
lifestyle and how we can, you're speaking about um, brain health and, and uh, not only thinking about the brain when something is wrong, rather yeah. what can we do on a daily basis to try to um, create the, the, the context that, that we can thrive in. And first off, I want to speak about tied to neuroplasticity, habit formation. Because this is something that I know is challenging. It's something that we work a lot with uh, in trying to support habit formation. And as I understand it, it comes down over long time. The reason why it's so hard is that we need to create these new pathways, which is many times harder when we're older. Could you speak a little bit about habit formation? How does it relate to uh, neuroscience? And do you know of practices that can help us uh, create the habits we're trying to perform? Do you have any, do you have any uh, examples of, of types of habits? Types of habit, that? yeah. So <clears throat> let's take the habit, let's see if this works. So um, when you speak about lifelong learning, mm for example. Uh, many can find that a very daunting subject and big and just the word lifelong seems very out there. <laughs> yeah, but the way we try to break it down is to meaning learning something daily. Mm -hmm. So let's say I want to create a habit of becoming a daily learner. So, and let's say I, I, I want to read. I want to create the habit of reading daily, yeah. let's say. We will get into another habit later on, But could we start with that one? Well, I think a lot of the focus in is on, okay, how do I create the environment to, to perform this habit? How do I connect this habit to something so I will remember it? How do I actually perform this new skill? Yes. But what is kind of missing in, in, in that is there's a reason why we're not already doing it. What's the reason? Why are you not doing it? Because that's the thing that is going to make you do it for a short while and then stop. Okay. We go to the gym for, I don't know, a couple of months. We're super happy. We like exercise five times a day. We feel great about it. Something happens. You get a cold, you're off for 10 days and you don't go back. There is a reason. Mm. So what is the reason? So whenever there is a habit that we're not performing or there is something that we would like to integrate into our life, but we don't manage to do it, to me, it's, it, it's kind of important to look at why. Why are you not doing it? And that often comes back to some form of emotional state. Okay. I was thinking spontaneously about what we spoke about first of the um, development during yeah. your, your younger years. Yeah. So does that relate? So maybe you haven't created that path. You said some paths wither away. Is yeah, I think, I don't think there are, I don't think there are like like you have a path for, for basketball and then, oh. and then you don't practice that. And then that goes away. I think it's just like a complete mesh of like billions of opportunities of how to connect these billions and billions of connections and neurons, um, without any kind of structure to it. Mm -hmm. And then you start mm -hmm. building up things that are coherent and adapted to what you are doing, what you're experiencing, what you're thinking. Um, And, and you can do that with, with a habit when it comes to actually forming the habit. A lot of it has to do with, uh, with kind of timing it, having energy for it, having the resources to do it, um, having some form of reminder to do it. Usually the habit in itself is not that difficult. Mm. I mean, I've been trying to learn how to floss for like seven years. Mm. It's not difficult, but there's a reason why we don't do it. So it's, it's in that case helping create the context with the right cues, maybe. Uh, so if, if it's uh, the emotional states, I'm thinking emotions are quite fluid and, and you can't really time that, but how do you combat that or how do you actually work with that? Well, I think when it comes to kind of setting the stage for the habit itself, you can do things like habit stacking, where you connect a new habit to something that is already a habit, like brushing your teeth, you do it every day, and then you connect a new habit to that. Um, having your exercise clothes ready and out makes it easier to put them on to facilitate things around it. But I think a lot of the reasons why we don't do things is because it somehow triggers anxiety. Mm. And often that is connected to our fear of failure, to our fear of not being good enough, to our core beliefs about ourselves um, and why we maybe don't deserve to do something, why we can't do something, why it's no use even trying to do something. And those things that kind of spin in the back of our mind, mm. 
is what is preventing us to do a lot of things. Because if something you're trying to do something and either you just, it goes really well, you love it. Everything is like, you just keep going and you do the habit and you feel really great, but then something happens mm. and you quote unquote fail. Yes. And then you feel like shit about mm. failing. You don't want to pick it up again because it's going to give you that anxiety of failure of, I can't do this, of, I might fail, of people might see me not being able to do this. So I think a lot of it kind of comes back to our core beliefs about ourselves and how this prevents us from doing things. Mm. Often if you have anxiety about something, you tend to avoid that anxiety by either procrastinating it, finding something else that feels more important. Like, you know, my flowers are going to die if I don't water them today. I mean, I just need to do that. So this type of work here, it, it needs to wait for a while. Um, or just binging on Netflix. Anything that will lower our level of anxiety is, is kind of more important for us in the moment than doing the habit that we know is good for us. So we prioritize the other side tasks. We prioritize survival, basically. Emotional survival. <laughs> Sorry. And you're, you're mentioning um, anxiety and, and getting anxious. That was actually one of the questions I got in from uh, our listeners. Mm -hmm. um, trying to understand what happens in the brain when we get anxious and maybe what can we do around that? Well, anxiety, I think, is a form of fear. It's like a, a close emotion to fear. Mm -hmm. And and fear is something that's very primal and that is kind of survival driven. It is there to keep us safe. Our brain has a bias toward negative and scary things mm -hmm. because it's designed to keep us safe and for us to survive. So what happens when we start feeling stressed out, anxious, scared of something is that we trigger the fight flight response, mm -hmm. which is something that kind of comes from really deep areas of the brain. It's really reflexive. Um, it triggers a, a rush of adrenaline, a rush of, of blood sugar, it, it dilates your pupils, your heart rate goes up, your breathing goes up, your body gets in a state where you have the resources mm -hmm. to fight or flight, to run away. Some people freeze as well, that is, that is another way to do it, but the resources that you're amounting is to, to kind of fight it or run away from it. And this is why we start feeling so you know, the feeling of being anxious mm -hmm. is you, you can be a little bit shaky. Mm -hmm. um, you're breathing fast. You can feel a bit dizzy. You feel, you, fe you feel, yeah, you feel overwhelmed. You feel stressed <laughs> out. And I think a lot of that comes from the, the physical reaction to um, stress. Oh, yes. And this is more the acute stress response when it's really visible that something is going on. Mm -hmm. But often what we do have in today's society um, is micro stressors mm -hmm. that are tiny stressful thought patterns or occurrences in, in day-to-day life that kind of triggers a little bit of stress. You, you don't go into full fight flight mode, but you're a little bit stressed out kind of all the time. Mm. And what happens is that it will raise the baseline of, for example, cortisol and other hormones in the body that will have negative effects on your health and your brain uh, over time. So there are kind of different types of stress and anxiety and, and fear and, uh, and these emotions, I believe, are somehow connected with each other in mm. that kind of response. I like that description as well, tying into the sort of anthropological reasoning and, and how we have developed. And then that gets me thinking that the body responds in this way. It, it, it's a hormonal response and physiological response. But the context, we might have a hard time identifying the, the actual fear. So then we do we spend more time blaming ourselves? Or do we end up in a psychological trap? Well, I think, I think a lot of it comes down to awareness because a lot of the times we don't know why we feel bad. Yeah. Um, sometimes we don't have the emotional literacy. We can say like, I feel overwhelmed or I feel stressed, mm -hmm. but there is actually more specific emotions underneath but we don't know where, what those are. Mm -hmm. And also when you feel stressed out or when you feel anxious, where do you feel it? Mm -hmm. We're not always aware of exactly where in the body it is we're feeling something or what it is we're feeling. And we don't know where it comes from. Usually we have this idea, well, you know, I have so much going on and I have this deadline and like I have this uh, conflict with, with like a family member and I have so many reasons to be stressed out. But in reality, there is a core belief, uh, for example, that you as a person are, don't have enough value, your self-esteem is low, or you're 
you have a fear of failure, you're very focused on other people's opinion. And the fear of, of those core beliefs being true mm. and being validated from something external mm. is causing the stress. So you may, might be freaked out about a deadline because you somehow in the back of your mind feel like you suck mm. and failing at something would kind of validate that that thought is true. So it's, that's very interesting. So it's sort of a question of it affecting your ego. It comes into you, um, not that you failed, but you are a failure in that case and being able to. Yeah, we tend, we tend to have core beliefs that are related to different labels um, and that somehow connect to, to fear of something. Um, to fear of rejection, to to fear of uh, not being being loved, to fear of not being included, um, and I believe awareness of these things are the first step to take because your brain needs to see that mismatch in order to rewire that part. So if you have low self esteem, for example. If you're not aware of the thought patterns that are kind of in the back of your head being driven by this or driving this, you don't know how to approach this or what to do with it. You, it needs to kind of come to the surface. And as always, you need to be really careful with things. If you do have past trauma, if you do have psychiatric disease, if you have some form of mental health issues, you need professional help before you start kind of digging into your, your internal environment and your thought patterns and everything like that. Um, it's really important then to first seek professional help to see if there is some form of medication you might need and to have some guidance in doing all of these things. Um, provided you don't have any previous trauma, any previous uh, mental health issues or, or current, I, I think it's good to, to sit with emotions, to think about, to, to just often the first thing we think about is wrong. Mm. Like it, it, it just is, we just, we have like an explanation to ourselves like, no, but I'm feeling this because of this. The simple sort of answer. Yeah, or, or, or yeah, something that is, um, but then to just kind of like keep going with it. Mm -hmm. And, and I've noticed, I think sitting with the emotion and trying to focus on where the emotion is can actually surface, um, thought patterns that you're not very aware of. So if you feel anxiety and you sit with that anxiety and you just try, you just let it be and you try to feel where in the body you feel it like, okay, maybe I feel a tightness in my chest. Maybe I feel this knot in my stomach. Just sit and focus on that area and just feel that area. And all of a sudden things might just pop up. That is some form of like clue mm. to what is going on in the back of your mind that is kind of creating these coping mechanisms that you have. That brings me to the topic of, um, <clears throat> because your podcast explores empathy and compassion. Uh, I believe it's described on the path to self-compassion. Just describe the need here for self-compassion. What have you learned from your podcast? Oh, I learned so many different things. Um, I kind of started out in one corner and then I'm just finding more and more different avenues of interesting things. And, and empathy and compassion is, is one of the topics that has had a little bit more um, focus on, uh, among other areas as well. And compassion and self-compassion are often, you can often train those like parallel to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think self-compassion is something that many of us is, is lacking. We're not very proficient in it. And it is so important for our well-being, it's important for our self-esteem. It's important for our stress levels. It's important for our relationship with others. It's it's just hugely important and something that we don't um, we don't acknowledge it so much. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people also feel a bit like I don't deserve compassion. Why? Like why should I like myself? I suck. We have a tendency to to kind of believe that we don't deserve good things sometimes we don't deserve. And, and also sometimes people are afraid that if I remove the, the negative thoughts I have about myself, then I lose my drive for change. People believe that friction and unhappiness and feeling discontent with things is what will drive you to change it. 
And that if you become this kind of really calm and peaceful person who just, I just, I'm just happy with everything as it is. Mm -hmm. I think I'm fully accepting reality. I'm fully accepting everything as it is. That that would then mean that you don't have a drive to change anymore. And and so they kind of shy away from that and go like, no, no, no. I need to push myself. I need to feel a little bit stressed out. I need to feel fear for this deadline because that is what drives me to do it. Um, and and I kind of believe it's a little bit the other way around. I think if you reach that that kind of level of of psychological well-being you will have a, a different and maybe greater drive for change but you will change things that makes you feel good because we often try to change things that we think other people will like mm, yes. well if i exercise i'll look fit it's important. If I work really hard, I'll get rich. Yeah, that's important. Um, we look to these societal norms and, and this kind of like praise that we can get from external sources because we don't praise ourselves. Instead of getting to what intrinsically motivates us and could drive us even further and without as much uh, strain and effort. Yeah, instead of just realizing that we're perfectly fine the way we are mm -hmm. and 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 drive towards progress is something that is joyful and it's something that we usually want to do mm -hmm. just because we kind of like to progress, mm -hmm. we like to learn and if you don't then that's fine. I mean if you just want to live a life that is kind of repetitive the way you're already doing that's perfectly fine. And I find that many times it's hard to hold uh, two truths that seem contradictory. For example, I'm perfectly fine as I am, but I can get better at the same time. It's hard to hold those. Yeah, I think that's because we use this kind of, uh, we use this wording of improving, of becoming better, of, of like, of, gr of growing. But I think it's more... I mean, it's changing and developing. It's not, it's not becoming better necessarily because you're already fine the way you are. You don't need, there's something wrong with you. Oh, yes. You don't have to become better. You, you don't have to yes. fix anything. There's nothing is wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we, what we kind of get stuck in, in self-help. We delve into self-help when we feel that there's something wrong with us. Like I'm not okay the way I am, but once I fix, fix this thing, yes then I'm going to be okay. After reading this book. After reading this book, <laughs> it's going to be so amazing. After just doing these things, after reaching that point, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And then someday you reach that point, but you're not okay because you're looking at something else that is even further ahead. Uh, what we don't realize is that the experience we're having today is something that we were longing for some while back. But we don't think about that anymore because now we're stressing about something else that we don't have. Always in the future. Yeah, we're always in the future. And and I, I think the way to see it is to, to develop, to change, to to just kind of like move joyfully. We learn things because it's fun to learn things, because we want to try new things, because we want to maybe hang out with new people because we want to like, I don't know, we want to be able to sew our own clothes mm -hmm. uh, instead of going like, Hey, I need to be able to do this because I will be better. I will be more desirable for an employer or for a partner or for my family or for just society in general to just want to learn because we enjoy learning yes. just like kids enjoy playing. Yes. And, and hearing you describe this, I, I was thinking about, my favorite word, which is not a complicated word, it's a simple word, curiosity. Ah, uh, yeah. Yes. And, and uh, <clears throat> attacking life, if you want to say it like that, uh, with the curiosity, just a general curiosity. I am perfect, but I'm curious about this. I'm curious about exploring yeah. what happens if I do this. Uh, and that being so much closer to that intrinsic, once again, motivation. What am I curious about? Yeah. And what do I think someone will think if I do this? And that is extremely useful when it comes to emotion regulation and when it comes to actually this becoming aware of your own thought patterns, your own your own inner beliefs, is to become cur <clears throat> become curious about them. 
So when you're in some form of agitated state or you're feeling really bad about something to become curious and go like, Hey, what's going on? Where am I feeling this? What am I feeling? What is this emotion? Where is it seated in my body? Where is it coming from? What's happening here? Why am I, why am I doing this? Why is this my, my normal reactive pattern? And to try to figure out what's behind that, because then you trigger your brain. You see a mismatch and you can start to fix it. And just the your, your tone, the tone of your voice there when you're asking these whys, it sounded like you were, <clears throat> even though it's hard, of course, you won't be objective because you're thinking about yourself and <laughs> exploring yourself. But it sounded like it's a little bit more of an objective approach. What's going on here? <clears throat> yeah, you kind of detach a little bit yes. from from this really strong like sense that we have because when we're in a really heightened emotional state it feels like this is going to go on forever yes. we 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 fail to see how transient everything is in life yes. <clears throat> that emotions always come and go you can always move through them uh, and if you move through them they will transform into something new um, it's the same with happy emotions we like when we are happy we just want to cling on to it. we yeah. want to be happy forever and when we're not feeling happy we kind of want to suppress that emotion we don't want to have bad emotions we want to create a life where we're constantly happy uh, which which doesn't work either we need Need to be able to live with the fluctuations of emotions and move through them. But what happens is when we have constant reactive patterns that are negative to us um, and that just occur and occur and occur, and that causes us to, to do things that are not beneficial for us. For example, we're, we're eating in a way that is not great for us, or we're not doing something that we should do, or we are interacting with other people in a way that is not promoting good social bonds. Then we need to look at, okay, what's going on? Why am I doing this? What is this coping mechanism that I'm having? And <clears throat> now we're getting into a topic that, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> um, we're getting into a topic that I feel like we've been dancing around. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like a lot could come back to this. I know there's several things we can try and apply and, and, and test for both brain health, just living a healthy life. But meditation seems to be like, it seems to be one of those things that has a lot of benefit uh, that people can try and apply in different uh, um, 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 different levels, let's say. Maybe we can start with what have you learned from your podcast about the benefits of meditation, but also I'm very curious what we know about meditation and uh, neurology. How do they relate? Yeah, so meditation is really awesome for, for people who enjoy it. Um, and I think what we're still lacking when it comes to talking about meditation is that we, we, we simply call it meditation. We go like, hey, do you meditate? Yeah, awesome. Nice. Me too. Mm. Uh, but I don't ask you like, hey, do you do, you do physical exercise? Yeah, cool. Me too. <laughs> Without knowing. Uh, I mean, I'm going to ask you, obviously, what are you doing? Are you swimming? Are you running? Are you like playing ping pong? Whatever. Like, what are you doing? And meditation is the same thing. There are hundreds of different practices that you can do, and they're all targeted at doing different things and kind of training different muscles of the mind. Yes. That's one thing. When I started meditating, I had a misconception of what it was. Yeah. So I thought I had to do it in a specific way. And yeah. when I struggled with that, I was failing. Yeah. But with the years, I've understood that me walking in the forest can be as meditative as me sitting down. But there are so many, there are so many different practices and to find something that you enjoy and that you kind of connect with and, and doing using it's often good also to use different meditative practices because what they're doing is that they're training different skills so it's basically growing the garden of your mind mm -hmm. so you want to kind of grow different seeds or i don't know beautiful flowers um such as compassion um focus optimism gratitude and you also want to look at kind of you know plants that you don't want to have there that you can gently remove um like different core beliefs that are not serving you well that are not helpful to you to to cultivate those skills and and to do it in different ways is an amazing way of working with both your brain health, your mind, your your physical health. Um, and we know that there are a lot of benefits to it. Um, 
depending on if you do focus me- focus meditation uh, often it's focused on breathing mm. you you can train your focus mm. you become more relaxed they've seen that people who meditate can become more optimistic they have a tendency to to look for more positive things around them you improve your immune system you lower your inflammation you there are so many different benefits to it and we're just starting to understand more and more about it. Research is is constantly expanding when it comes to this. Um, but as with many different areas that are connected to the mind, research is difficult because a lot of the measures are subjective. Oh, yes. We don't have really stable, good objective measures that can be used in daily life. Mm-hmm. We do have it in research settings, mm-hmm. like in a hospital where you can do like super cool scanners and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, but you can't do that just on people on the street. Oh, yes. So so, so there is a lot of research going on and, and we're just learning more and more about it. And, and it's, it, it really is an awesome thing to do and it can help you develop a lot of the skills that you need, for example, to trigger plasticity, to trigger learning, to, um, to reduce emotional reactivity, to become more aware of those things that are happening in your mind and how to deal with them. It's a great kind of like gateway into working with all of these things in parallel oh yeah so it's like a it's like a tool that you can use to yeah mold the brain if we're yeah. thinking about it towards a certain and then also this thing that you said that you that you were struggling with it and you felt like you were failing i think that's one of the greatest misconceptions people have mm. meditation good meditation is failing mm. what you yes, want to do is fail correct. That that's like the only thing you're supposed to do because you're trying to focus or something, or you're trying to have an open monitoring sense, or you're trying something else, and your mind will inevitably wander away. That's what the mind does. It just wanders away into something else. And the job is to notice that it did. That's what I learned eventually. And gently bring it back. Yes. So when people go like, ah, you know, I really sucked at meditating today. My mind was just all over the place. It drifted away like a thousand times. So it's like, that's awesome. Because yes. 1000 times you had the practice of noticing that your mind went somewhere else and gently bringing it back. And that is meditative practice. And you've also gotten the measurement maybe of where you are right now. So, you know, with trying that and sitting down for a moment and, and it drifting away a thousand times rather than a hundred times, uh, like yesterday, you know, maybe right now you're in a state where you're mo- a little bit more, let's say, frantic or... or Yeah, and I mean, that's going to change from day to day yeah. as well. I mean, sometimes we're just more stressed out or yeah. we're just more preoccupied. And 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 the whole idea is to just... Just the doing of it is the actual meditation, not reaching something or becoming something or... It's just doing it. Yes. And also what, what I find is with that insight that, okay, today was a little bit harder. It was more challenging uh, in my meditation practice. Maybe I can form my day in a different way. Maybe I need to take an hour here where I was supposed to do an extra thing, but take this hour to just take a a non-sleep deep rest or whatever, a walk or whatever. So, So you have that awareness and you can act on it and not end up in a social situation that you then regret and then create anxiety. <laughs> so <laughs> giving yourself the chance. Yeah, everything is about know, knowing your, know thyself, mm. know thyself. Um, and that's a journey. It's, I mean, we never really get to know ourselves either. I think we just, we, we just keep going at it. Yeah. Um, and we try to enjoy the ride while doing it. Brilliant, spot on. Uh, self-compassion. Yes. yes, very hard. And speaking of know thyself, I'm very curious about you. So let me start with asking, uh, and and being a learning podcast, (laughs) what does your learning process look right like? And when you say learning process, what do you what do you mean by that? So I'm guessing for work, Mm -hmm. uh, you dive into new subjects and and need to jump into new challenges. So Mm -hmm. that's maybe one aspect. But sitting here with you and having listened to your podcast, I also know you're very curious. So you probably do a lot of learning on your free time as well. How do you go about in these different contexts, both professionally, I have to learn this, let's say, (laughs) and the curious aspect? Well, I think... When it comes to the curious aspect, we just tend to do it. 
I just, I just read articles. I just find people. I just, cause I just can't stop myself. I mm -hmm. just want to know mm -hmm. when it comes to things that I more need to learn and that can be more challenging. Um, I think a good way is, is to try to look at it from, okay, what are, what are the concepts I need to understand? What are the things I need to learn um, like theoretically learn and what is the thing I'm about that I'm supposed to do. Mm. So thinking about the, the output, let's say in the process from the beginning. Yeah. To, to kind of look at the, the bigger picture. I think we tend to, I, I just recently saw something, um, it's called ultra learning mm -hmm. and I forgot the name of, do you know him? Yes. Uh, is it James, James Clear? I've read the book. No, um, I think James Clear is the one that made Atomic, Atomic Habits. Habits, right? Yes. Okay, but I've so, read Ultra Learning yes. and not Atomic Habits. So Ultra Learning <laughs> is something else. Uh, you, What's you, his name? you should check it out and yes. you should put it somewhere under the the podcast uh, thing. Um, and and I haven't I haven't fully read the book yet. I just saw kind of like an overview of it, but it seemed really cool. Um, and it's about this thing of understanding the concepts that you need to understand, understanding the theory that you need to know and understanding what it is that you're supposed to do. And then kind of starting by actually doing the thing. And when you will hit like a wall or a roadblock, look to, okay, is there a concept I'm not understanding? Is there a skill that I don't have? And then you drill that until you know it. And then you keep doing the thing you're supposed to be doing um, until you hit the next roadblock. And that this is a more efficient way of learning. So I'm thinking, because I have a lot of things that I need to learn. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about looking more into that kind of mode of doing it. Um, Cause it's a bit different. I, when I went to university, it was the same thing as, as always, like they give you a book with so much different facts that you're supposed to just memorize and just know rather than this is the real world application of it. And then backing up to the theory that you need to know. So it's a little bit the, the opposite way around, but that's how I traditionally was taught how to learn things. And I was kind of naturally good at that. And I like doing that. So I was a good student in school because I naturally gravitated towards this set of skills that you were supposed to have, which mm. is complete bullshit. And like I wrote memorization. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I really hope school is becoming better for kids now and realizing that you learn in different ways. And that's awesome. Um, but now I'm looking into like more efficient ways of learning and more fun ways of learning. What I'm hearing from what you're saying and also remembering from the book, uh, mm. Ultra Learning, that I read years ago, um, is coming to the applying of the knowledge. So yeah. by thinking of the big picture, how is this going to be used? You're When you're reading or when you're going through the material, you're having an easier time yeah. applying it and applying yourself in the context. Yeah. So it becomes more... And just kind of diving straight into it. Yeah. And I think when you when you come from like, a, when you have a bit of fear of failure, we, we tend to not want to do that. Mm because you do it because you want to fail. You want to fail as fast as possible so that you can see the mismatch where you've gone wrong and correct it. Correct. Uh, and you want to have someone who can give you feedback on that and go like, you did this thing wrong, this is how you do it right. Um, and that's the fastest way of learning rather than trying to just understand theory. And then when you feel like, okay, I can do this, then you try to do it because mm. you, you want to already be able to do it. Mm. Um, because we're so uncomfortable failing, but failing is actually the only driver for success that we have. Yes. Yes. Um, it's what we need to change in any way, um, which I've hated to admit because <laughs> I hated failure for most of my life, but I'm realizing the, the theory of it at least, and yes. I'm trying to put it into practice. And I'm also very curious. So you run the podcast Brain Observations. I do. Yes. A brilliant podcast. Recommend it to everyone. I'll link it uh, below. And what got you into the role or what drives you uh, to the role as a communicator? Uh, I think I was just so excited about all of the research and, and the scientific community and the medical community and everything that we're learning and everything that we're knowing. But I didn't see, I, I feel like most of the information that comes out into media and mainstream is like, I don't know, chocolate is good for your sex life. Mm -hmm. That's when it comes out. and. And that there is not really, I wanted to be a little bit of a bridge between 
uh, like the human experience and, and neuroscience mm -hmm. and make it more understandable to people to present this information to people so that they can just, you know, listen to it if they enjoy it. Maybe that it can give them some food for thought, mm -hmm. trigger some interesting insights and, and make them interested in learning more, changing something in their life. And, and in the long term to, to kind of figure out what is it that goes on in the brain? Mm. Like, what what is it that kind of creates those core beliefs? What what can we do with those core beliefs? How are they impacting our life? How can we how can we change that? How can we rewire the brain from what we're doing right now to something that is serving us better, um, and that is going to be better for our health? That is going to be better for our relationships with other, which is going to be better for society. It's going to be better for everything. Um, and I'm just so curious about what is it that goes on in the actual brain, in those neurons and those connections um, to kind of like understand the neuroscience of self-development, basically. I love that. I, I will follow your journey and, and try to learn as awesome. much as possible from you. And, and, and I, I think we share that. We have a strong drive in communicating to help others and, and, and of course, uh, yeah, it's bettering life, learning more, learning better, well, bettering, changing, changing. Sorry, yes. <laughs> Doesn't need <laughs> to become need better. To, uh, change our slogan, which is learn better. <laughs> learn different. Learn different. Yes, but how much is um, selfish as well? Interest in you're learning a lot, and I'm guessing you're applying a lot of what you're learning. And how much of the of that is a drive? your own exploration and applying and oh i think that's a, I, I think that's almost the entire drive yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i am so i, I think it, it it's kind of common a combination of like i just want to understand myself i want to understand others i want to that's why i entered medicine as well i was just so curious about the the human yeah. That I just wanted to learn as much as possible. It wasn't necessarily because I was like, yeah, I, I really want to work as a doctor. I just wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And so I just went to university and I started reading and I started learning and it was just shit is fucked up. <laughs> uh, and, and then I was just more and more fascinated by the brain. And I've been ever since I was a kid, I think like the brain is just awesome. And so I, I went into neurology and because I wanted to learn as much as possible about the brain. And then I kind of hit a roadblock where it's like, okay, now I know about the brain, what neurology, at least like the basic neurology that you learn through training can, can give me. Mm -hmm. But there is this next level of the flourishing brain of the, of the happy brain of the, of like the developing brain, I want to learn more about that. So that's why I'm now seeking out specialists and experts all over the world and just talking to them and because they know a lot of things and, and I just get to learn and it's so awesome. Awesome. Amazing uh, position to be in. Ah. And you mentioned the scientific community in large. <clears throat> I'm very curious, what would you say is the state of the neuroscientific community or neuroscience uh, the, the, the amount of information we know about the brain today and where do you think it's heading? I, I think it's going to merge more and more as with everything else with uh, machine learning and with different, you know, digital tools and things we're going to understand more and more about ourselves by using digital tools and by using machine learning and, and things like that. And especially since the brain is so complex, um, like we can't necessarily figure it out, out ourselves. We need machine learning in, to be able to explore it. Yes. But what I think is amazing about the brain is that it's the only organ that can study itself. That's really cool. I mean, the liver doesn't do anything. Exactly. And it's, and it's just that... like, it's, it's an organ in the body that can study itself. Like it's such a freaky thought. Yeah, metacognition is, is I wish I could spend uh, all my time <laughs> dedicated to that. The thinking about thinking, learning about learning and understanding. It's so cool. And you, so you, your career seems to have uh, uh, taken different paths, like you described it, you started off, and, but it also seems like it's been fully driven by curiosity, which I love. But what do you wish you knew earlier in your career? Ah, Something that would have served me well just by knowing in life is that when we struggle, when we're 
when we're just struggling, it's not because we lack something. It's not because we lack willpower, that we lack the willingness, that we lack um, knowledge or organizational skills or value or worth or anything. We are just that little child trying to cope with the environment we were placed in. And we're not in that environment anymore, but we're still trying to cope with it. So coming back to self-compassion, I'm guessing. Yeah. And so, I, cause I think childhood is the part of our life where the brain is so plastic. It is changing so much with experiences and with everything we do, but we have almost no, or actually no control over our situation, over our experiences. It just kind of happens to us. Other people decide what our experiences will be. And then we could become adults and all of a sudden we can control our experience to some extent. Um, but we're kind of stuck with the brain we got. We don't have the same level of... We don't have the same level of of doing something with it. And, and it's been so ingrained, this like survival mechanism to deal with whatever we were subjected to as children and adolescents and young adults is something that we're always going to fear and we're always going to believe that it's out there and we're going to use the coping mechanisms we needed in that environment, in this new environment we're in, which often doesn't have great results. But it was a way for that little child to survive and to feel compassion for that little child and go like, hey, I ended up where I am, not because I'm a sucky person, not because I am weak, not because I don't have the willpower, not because I'm not good enough at self-help or whatever. It's because you were just that little kid. There was absolutely nothing you could do. You were just trying to cope and you're still coping. I think that's a very powerful message. Actually, if you, if you, um, if you're able to take that in, um, and also keep trying to, uh, uh, whatever you deem to be, uh, different <laughs> version of yourself, <laughs> keep trying to develop and, 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 um, rewire your brain as much as you can towards uh, the behaviors and patterns you seek to uh, perform in life. But also having that compassion for the little child and an understanding of how your environment and context has shaped your prerequisites. Yeah. Uh, but it's not as well. So it, that <clears throat> that um, has a big effect, but it's maybe not fully deterministic or de determining um, your path forward. No, like we can change at any moment. And I think that is so awesome. It doesn't matter where we are we can always change. And if there's something that we don't feel good about, sometimes we need help. Sometimes we need professional help. Sometimes we actually don't have resources and we need the rest of the world to fix things so that we can, because there's a lot of differences between different people. Um, but there is opportunity for change in the brain always. And that's what it wants to do. It's what it's made to do. It's You just got to give it a mismatch. You just need to know what is actually wrong. And that's usually not the thing you tell it it's wrong. So keep analyzing, keep sitting with it, keep practicing your presence, and, and you <clears throat> might uh, find some answers. I think you will. Yeah. That's a very beautiful and powerful way to end this uh, podcast and conversation. Thank you very much, Maria, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been so much fun. I love being here. And besides your podcast, Brain Observations, where can people find or interact with you? I'm guessing people might be curious. Um, for anyone who's curious, there's, of course, there's a website for the podcast. It's called brainobservations.com. Um, and I'm also available on LinkedIn where I'm posting little snippets of things that I talk about with my guests. And, and that's also a way of interacting um, with me. So I would say those two uh, avenues would be the safest bets. Spot on. And I'm looking forward to future podcast episodes of yours. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Learnability Podcast, which is produced by Align. It's our mission to create equitable learning opportunities for all. So if you find this episode helpful, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can download and try out the Align app at alignbetter.com. That's align spelled A-L-I-N-E, better.com.